Well, we have been traveling through what we call the essential Jesus, and this morning I'm going to bring you the facts. A lot of times we throw these words around like, what are the facts? Give me the facts. Is that a fact, Jack? (laughs) (laughs) But a lot of times we throw these words around and a lot of times what we end up saying is we want to know the facts. We want the facts about everything. So you go buy a car, you want the facts. If you go to purchase something for Christmas and you're going to buy a gift, you want the facts on it. You want to know exactly what you're getting before you invest into it because we want to know the facts. We want to digest facts on a regular basis. We are factual people. What's interesting is, is that for Christ followers, facts are important to us. A lot of times facts actually represents knowledge and we like to have knowledge because knowledge equals power. The more knowledge we have, the more power we have. And that means if we have power, then we're more equipped to handle what we're going to face. So my question today for us, it brings us to a key rhetorical question is simply this, why is Jesus so essential? And today we're going to dig into the facts as to why Jesus is so essential. And I'll start off by telling you this. The reason that he's essential is of two things. One, because of love. And two, because of sin. In the book of Genesis, you can see, if you read the book of Genesis, the author unfolds for us what is really going on in heaven and why Jesus is so essential. Because of love and sin. It shows us in the word of God that Adam and Eve were created here on earth. And the original intention, the original plan was that they would live in the Garden of Eden and that they would walk with God. Adam and Eve were approached by Satan in the form of a serpent that we know of according to the book of Genesis. Satan makes them an offer that they can't refuse, or at least that they weren't willing to refuse. Sin enters the world. Long story short, sin enters the world, and God says blood needs to be shed so that that sin can be atoned, that it can be purchased and paid for so that no one will suffer. But it has to be someone perfect. And the reason I want this to be atoned for, the reason I want to put an end to this sin is because of love. It's because of my intense love for all of mankind to set us free. These are the facts. These are the facts that we have come to know, that we have heard story upon story about. These are the facts that we have chosen to memorize over time. And these are the truths that we have memorized for those of us who are Christ followers. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, but more than not, even if you don't follow Jesus, you've heard that there is one called Jesus who has died for your sins. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. I really enjoy author and speaker Bob Goff. Reading one of his books lately, this is what he said, I used to think I could learn about Jesus by studying him, but now I know Jesus doesn't want stalkers. Is that what it means to know the facts about something? Is that what it means to be a Christ follower? Is that what it's come to for us? To know the facts about Jesus and be content? To be a stalker of the one who is the creator of the universe? Maybe we should unpack what a stalker is. A stalker is somebody who gets the facts about someone. They become obsessed with someone. Generally, more than not, that someone doesn't know that they're being stalked and they're oblivious. Generally, it's a relationship with no reciprocation from the other party because they're unaware of the relationship that's going on. Usually, pretty much one that's not wanted. A stalker is one who's obsessed with, with memorizing every detail about the other party. They, wanna, they know where they work. They know what they do. They know what they enjoy, what they listen to, what they eat. 
They know everything about them, what routes they take to work, so on and so forth. That is what a stalker does. They memorize the facts. They're obsessed with gaining that knowledge. Now, if we think about this for a moment and we apply it to our lives as Christ followers, it's pretty easy to collect the facts and memorize things about Jesus, isn't it? We've been walking through the essential Jesus over these past few weeks, and we want to let you know that if you're still looking for a booklet, they're available out there at at our media center out there. They're available. Make sure you pick one up. And this week, you're actually going to be reading through uh, days 31 through 35, and you're actually going to dig into the facts. You're going to dig into the facts about the New Testament and about the birth of Jesus and about his life, and you're going to begin that journey. And that's where we're at today. But here's the thing, we have a choice in joining together, in memorizing and looking at these facts. When we open up the essential Jesus, when we open up the word of God, we have a choice and it's simply this. We can choose to gain more facts. We can choose to memorize more knowledge and add it to the rest of our facts and the rest of our knowledge about Jesus and Father and Holy Spirit. Or we can actually dive into those facts and take them to heart and allow God to transform what is inside of us that is currently there and allow those facts to be transformational and change our lives. If you think about it, how often do we we talk about God, we talk about Jesus, we talk about Holy Spirit like we're BFFs, right? I mean, I swear, I think sometimes if we could put them on our Facebook status, they would be like number one at the top right? Or if we're on Twitter, you know, we'd be tweeting about him all the time. I mean, we do tweet about him, but, but I mean, think about it. If we're on Twitter, you know, he'd be like our number one follower and we'd be his number one supporter. If he was on Instagram, we could do selfies with God and Holy Spirit and Jesus, you know, I mean, it would just be plastered because that's sometimes how we view God. It's just, we're so close. We're, we're BFFs because we know a lot about him. We know the facts, And a lot of times, sometimes we, we have this ability to, to memorize every book of the Bible in order. And, and sometimes we have this amazing ability to know the, the, the day that it was actually written and published and, and the author of the book. And all those things are important. And, and some of us can, can rattle off in moments and say, oh, I know the Greek for that and the Hebrew for this. And, and this is what that means. And did you know if you circle this four times, it means this in the Greek. But if you circle it one time, it means this in the Hebrew. And 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 all those things have their place. They're facts. But that doesn't mean we're BFFs with Jesus, Holy Spirit, and Father. Maybe today we just need to confess we're, we're actually stalking the Savior of the world. Because memorizing Jesus is not a love encounter with the Savior. This morning we're gonna look at some facts about Jesus that are found in the New Testament. But we're not just going to learn the facts. We're going to have an encounter with the Savior this morning. The one that we have been singing to all morning, the one that hopefully we have come and gathered here this morning to worship and to honor and pursue. Hopefully that's the reason why we came this morning. We're going to have an encounter with the Savior, and I'm going to give you a few facts this morning, and and they're very simple facts. And fact number one is this, Jesus left the manger. I like Christmas, one of my favorite holidays of the year. Sorry, I'm not a fan of Thanksgiving. I don't eat turkey. Um, I don't know why, it's just a thing that I do. I know some of you love Thanksgiving. I'm not a fan, but I love Christmas. In fact, if you get into my car, it's set to 99.9. And uh, just being honest here, I just sing those Christmas carols all the way here and back. Thank the Lord no one else is in the car (laughs) because they would probably not want to ever sing a Christmas carol again. (laughs) But I love Christmas. I love the presents, love getting presents, and I love giving presents. I like singing the songs. I like the idea of of a, of a fireplace and a, and a beautiful tree lit up. And I, I like the idea of drinking hot chocolate or warm apple cider or having that right cup of coffee. And, and just, just the atmosphere, the ambiance that Christmas always brings. I just really enjoy that a lot. 
I enjoy the food that comes with it. And most of all, I love reading. I love reminiscing. I, I love thinking and listening about the Christmas story. The cute, beautiful Christmas story, the, the precious story of the Savior coming to the world to save all of mankind. I love that. And I'm sure there's a lot of you here who love that as well. But the truth is, Jesus left the manger. That's a fact. Jesus didn't come to stay in the manger. He didn't come to create a holiday. He didn't come to create a wonderful story. He came to fulfill the heart of God and execute a rescue mission for all of mankind who is in a state of death, spiritually. He came with a mission in mind, and he didn't come with the intention to stay in the manger. Let's look together at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is where we get the Christmas story. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. It's a pretty amazing story. I can read this over and over and over, even outside the Christmas season. And it's just mind-blowing to think about how genius God is. That we serve a God who has this amazing, incredible, supernatural ability to physically, not just spiritually, but physically implant life into a human being and create this wild, amazing, yet mysterious story and then we see a physical birth taking place and a physical man in the, uh, in the God nature, Jesus, coming to the earth and growing up as a child and a teenager and an adult and so on and so forth, fulfilling the word of God. It's awesome. It's awesome. And what we just read is what we deem the Christmas story. We enjoy this story because... We like what it has to offer. I mean, we're, uh, how many of us truthfully, you know, always look forward to hearing a really bad story? You know, like none of us are always like looking forward to hearing a really bad story with a really bad turnout. You know, no, we, we like to hear good things. And, and that's why the world is okay with Jesus being in the manger. Because we're comfortable with Jesus in the manger. Because Jesus in the manger isn't threatening. It, got, it has a good ending to it. You know, God does this cool little thing with Mary's belly, you know, and it's like, you know, out comes baby Jesus, you know, and, and he wasn't born at the Hilton, you know, as much as we want him to be, you know, wrapped in like some really nice linens from, you know, UPMC Women's Center, you know, and, and it would just be great, you know, if all the nurses were on standby to take care of the baby and make sure he's good, you know, show Mary all the ropes, you know, what it's like to be a mom, but, you know, that's not the case, but we're still good with the Christmas story because Jesus isn't threatening. And we like Jesus because Jesus is nice. Jesus is sweet. He's a cute little thing. He's a cute, cute, cute little baby. I mean, some of you moms here, I mean, how many times have you been tempted when you're thinking about reading the story? You know, you, you wonder what, what went through Mary's mind. You know, and, and let's get past the spiritual moment here. You know, some, some of us tend to over-spiritualize things. We're like, oh, you know, the son of a, just think human for a minute. Let's just, let's just be real. You know, like how many times did she really like take Jesus and, 
and, and look at him and just, you know, nestle his neck right up on her lips. And she's just, you know, you know, it's just your little Jesus, you know, you know, how many times was Joe tempted to pick, pick him up, you know, and like get that bare belly and go, you know, right into his belly, you know, like, I mean, what must have been going on? Because they're human. We're comfortable with that stuff. The fact is, though, he grew up. Later on, if we read through the Gospels, we find that the Magi, these wise men, they come bearing gifts and they didn't stop at the manger. They actually went to his house where he's older because he's growing. He's in the stage of adolescence. He left the manger and he's no longer there. And they go to find the Christ, the Son of God, and they go to his house and they look for him. And as we continue to unfold the Gospels in the New Testament that you're going to be reading this week, you would think by now, like Jesus is at this point, he's reached 12. You know, some of you have raised a 12-year-old or have a 12-year-old. You know, God bless you. And, you know, just, you would think by now, like as parents, they got a handle on this thing. You know, it's like, look, we've done the manger thing. We roughed it. We were in the worst, but now we're established. Things are going great for us. We're heading to Jerusalem. We had a great vacation in Jerusalem. We're on our way out. Oh my gosh, we forgot Jesus. Have any of you, don't raise your hand, <laughs> have any of you ever left your child somewhere, right? Think about the panic. Now, I have not, but I've come close. And I remember there was a day that I was at home, and it was summer. It was just this year. And my oldest daughter, Alessandra, she loves to play with her neighbor. She has all these neighbor friends, all these girls, all these little neighbor girls. They all run together in this little pack. And like, they're always together. They do everything together. Well, what we had known was, is she had gone to one neighbor's house. And we live in a, in a cul-de-sac where we really trust, we're friends with all the families, so we trust, really trust one another. We take care of one another's kids. So she goes off to the friend's house, and we know she's there because they're letting us know she arrived safe. Well, a few hours go by, and finally we're like, you know what? Alessandra should probably come home. So... Say, hey, can you send Alessandra home? Well, Alessandra did come home. I'm sorry, what? No, Alessandra did come home. She, she came home about an hour ago. An hour ago. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wait. No, she said that she was going to go to the other neighbor. She said she was going to go to the other neighbor's house. Okay, all right. That's cool. We'll go take care of it. We'll go deal with that. We go to the other neighbor's house. Alessandra isn't here. So now my daughter is in, not in two places where she's supposed to be. This creates a problem. I think it's the fastest I've ever gotten off of my couch. And I ran out the door like a chicken with my head cut off, screaming my daughter's name, running up and down the road, bare feet, running like crazy, trying to find my daughter. And all these things are just going through my mind. Where is my daughter? Did she fall? Did she get hurt? Does no one know? Did she fall down a drain? You know, like all these things are flying through. Did somebody come through the neighborhood and no one saw and picked her up and took her? I lost my heart. And within the moment of all the panic and the chaos, she emerges out of someone's backyard. She's like, I'm right here, daddy. And you know, as a parent, there's that one part you're like, I'll show you, daddy. You'll just, you get your own. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I love Jesus, though. I take care of my kids. It's a, you know. mm -hmm. It was in that moment that I just, the reality hit me that I almost lost my child. And so all I could do is grab her and hug her and embrace her and, and chat with her. And, and we have this somewhat similar scenario taking place in the New Testament between Mary and Joe. And They've realized, like, we lost Jesus. And so they, they get back and they, they hoof it as fast as they can. You know, no pun intended. But they, they, they get back on that donkey, on that horse, as fast as they can. And they make it back to Jerusalem. And they find Jesus in the temple. They find little safe Jesus in the temple. Little Jesus in the manger. They find him in the temple. 
And this is where we pick up in Luke chapter 2, verses 48 through 50. It says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. So here Jesus is, age 12, he's, he's teaching. And he's surprised that, not that they forgot him, he's surprised that they still don't grasp the fullness of who he is. He wasn't all worked up. He wasn't crying. He wasn't slobbering all over. You know, mom, dad left me. What am I going to do? I don't know how to get back to Galilee. Like he was... He was totally at peace because he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. He knew his mission. Jesus wasn't playing classic hide-and-seek from his parents. This tween was moving in the divine mission that his father had given him. And if we, we unpack the Gospels this week, and as we, as we go through the essential Jesus, we're going to find that there is this tension that's slowly building there's this tension that, that slowly builds from this moment where mom and dad find him in the temple and he's teaching and, and they're astonished and they're slightly upset. They feel disrespected. They kind of failed as parents, they feel, in their, in, their, in their minds. And there's this tension that's growing and building and it's not because they're bad parents. The tension is growing between them because they are beginning to see that this is the son of God and he's left the manger. And we see that throughout the life of Jesus, as he continues to grow and he becomes a teenager and he becomes a young adult and then he blossoms into adulthood, there is this continuous tension that keeps growing and growing and it finally all crescendos to the point of death where he's on the cross and he dies. And some are relieved that the tension is gone because there are those who oppose the leadership of Jesus. They oppose the plan of God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and religious leaders are against this because he's not doing what they want him to do. And some hear that there is a king who is coming up, and some are happy and some are furious, and there's a tension. And they feel the best way to get rid of the tension is just to kill the tension, but not just kill it off kill it physically. Because see, they're no longer thrilled that Jesus came in a manger. And they're no longer thrilled that Jesus left the manger because he's a threat. He's the son of God. See, there's some of us in this place where we've grown content with Jesus being in the manger. We know the facts about him being in the manger. We kind of feel like he's the buddy Christ. When we look at Jesus, we're like, hey, like me and JC, hey. And that's what we're comfortable with because Jesus is a good guy. Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus did a lot of nice things for a lot of people that other people didn't like. And we become comfortable with that Jesus, that Jesus in the manger. And, and we adopt those facts. And, and we say, yeah, I know Jesus. I have the facts. He was born in a manger, born of a Virgin Mary, came to life and did that thing on the cross that I fully don't understand. And supposedly, he, he rose from the dead. But all I know is that JC and I are good because he's still in the manger. For some of us in this place, Jesus is still in that manger. And so my question to you, those of you in this place this morning who say, I don't know Jesus, but I know the facts. I don't know him intimately, but I know the facts. I'm going to ask this question to you specifically. Has the Jesus you hear about left the manger? Has he left the manger yet? Because if he is still in the manger, all you know is the facts and you don't know him personally. 
And Jesus tells us that just knowing the facts will not give us eternal life with him. We need to know him intimately. And the Jesus that came in the manger may have started in the manger, but he left the manger. So the manger couldn't contain Jesus, and neither could the cross or the grave. Fact number two this morning, Jesus left the cross, and he left the grave. The cross is a symbol of Christianity. Many times when we think about Christ, we think about following Jesus, we think about God, often we have the image of the cross in mind. It's hard for that image to escape our imagination. Numerous studies have been done about the cross and the physical and the spiritual and theologians have done their best to unpack all of that. And the cross is, is something that is a symbol to us, is something that is sacred, and it, it's more than just a tool that was used for torture by the Romans, and it's, it's more than just a symbol for us as Christ followers. And for those of us who have given our hearts to Jesus, the cross is more than, than doctrine. The cross is salvation. The cross is an experience. The cross is an encounter with God. The cross is this experience where there is a releasing that happened between God and mankind. And sometimes we think about the cross, but we don't think about a releasing that took place. And so let's look at this in John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. Now, at this point, Jesus has been put on the cross. The process of crucifixion is underway, and we're getting at the tail end now. And this is what it says. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So those of us who are Christ followers, and, and even some of us here that, that say, I, I just, I'm not a Christ follower, usually generally more than not, we're pretty, we're pretty well aware of this story, that Jesus goes to the cross and he gives up his spirit. He says, it is finished all of these things begin to happen. He's taken down off the cross, and then they take him and they put him in a tomb. They put him in a grave. He left the cross. Things are different now, though. It's not just that this prophet, this good guy, this, this one who was born in a manger, uh, it's not that he just went to the cross and he was crucified a Roman death. It's, it's not that. It's not just that. Something has happened. Something is different than way before. And what is different is that everything that Jesus possessed is now ours. Everything that Jesus once possessed is now ours because of what he did on the cross. Out of his fullness, we have fullness, according to John 1.16. Out of his fullness, we have fullness now. In fact, we have to understand this, that with his fullness also comes our call to death. Paul talks about it in Galatians. He says that I was crucified with Christ. See, some of us here are comfortable with Jesus being on the cross. We know the facts. We know the facts that Jesus went to the cross. We know the facts that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus died, and that Jesus went in the grave. And we know the fact that he conquered death. We sang about it this morning. And we know the facts that Jesus rose from the grave. And we're good with that. That's great. We know the facts that we have salvation. And then we know the fact that that means we get to go to heaven and we get to live for eternity in the presence of Jesus. And we don't have to suffer in hell forever. Those are the facts. And we're good with that. 
But for some of us in this place, and I'm talking to myself as well, there are points in our lives where we're just not comfortable with being crucified with Christ. We're comfortable that Jesus came out of the manger. We're comfortable he went to the cross. We're good with those facts. But when Jesus comes to us and says, you haven't fully died with me yet, we kind of get a little uncomfortable. There's this difference between having great sympathy with Jesus being on the cross and really being crucified with him on the cross. Question to you is this, for, for those of you who are Christ followers and, and you say, I have been bought with the blood of Jesus. I have been crucified. I, I, I know that I can live righteously. My question, my, my question to you simply is, is, have you been fully crucified with Christ? Or are you living in a journey of sympathy where you sympathize with Christ on the cross? Because there is a difference. If we truly die with Jesus, then the way that we have been living will not be the same as before. We no longer live for ourselves, but we begin to live for him. Things have to change. There has to be a change in our lives. Once we give our hearts to Jesus, it just doesn't stop there. The journey continues, and the journey continues where Jesus begins to look at our lives and he says, we need to work on that, and we need to work on that, and this needs to go to the cross. This needs to be crucified. This needs to be dealt with with me. This has to die. For Christ followers, the cross means that there is this heavenly upgrade that is available for us. But we, but we can't grab a hold of that if, if we're just comfortable with Jesus being on the cross. If we're just comfortable with the facts about the story of Jesus dying, we're not going to understand that upgrade. We're not going to be willing to receive that upgrade. We're not going to be willing to go the distance and be crucified with him. That upgrade means that we get his grace. We get his provision. We get his promises. We get his presence. We have the ability to have victory, the ability to overcome, to be crucified, to die a death to self and have victory over it. I have to be honest. I am a wicked man. And I'm not just saying that, you know, to be like, make a sermon illustration. When I look at my life, I realize there is a lot of things in my life that still have to be crucified. The only way that I can allow Christ to crucify my flesh is if I move beyond the facts of him on the cross and realize that he left the cross so that I can have victory over my flesh. So that my flesh can be crucified. Some of us here, we want to limit Jesus to the cross. We want to keep him on the cross. We look at Jesus and we're just like, look, I get that you have this thing called grace. I got it that you have this thing called mercy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and we tell them with our lips, we're like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And in our hearts, we're so reserved. Like, yeah, God, I, I know you can provide for me, but I'll, I just, I feel better doing it myself. God, I, I know you have that grace and that mercy, but listen, you just don't get it. You don't get how evil of a person I really am. Like, you just don't get what I did to that person. You just don't understand all the gossip and, and all of the web of lies that I posed on that individual. You, you don't get it, God. Like, if you only knew how wicked and evil I am, like, your grace and your mercy just, you're better off, like, saving it for somebody else. And we leave him on the cross when we do that. We have the ability for death and resurrection in our own lives because Jesus left the cross. 
and he left the grave. See, something happened when Jesus left that grave. If we fast forward to Ephesians chapter one, if we go to Ephesians chapter one, it says that there was a seating, a physical seating of one who was a king, who is a king. There is a seating of one king. It declares that there is no other king in these scriptures. And it says that this king was seated, not at the same level, not on the same level of what I'm about to read. It says that the king was placed far above the level. And let me read to you where this king was placed far above, far above heavenly places, far above principalities, far above powers, far above might, far above dominion, and far above every other name. His name is Jesus. He left the cross and he left the grave and was seated far above all of those things. Which tells us that we have the ability to have victory through him above all of those things. Those are the facts. Those are the facts that we want. But we want those facts in here, in our heart. And we want to give Jesus access to our heart and just simply say, crucify me. Crucify what needs to be crucified so that there is nothing that stands between you and I. That is an awesome resurrection. And finally, we know that Jesus left the manger he left the cross and he left the grave, which means fact number three, Jesus is returning. Jesus is returning. You know, now the Thanksgiving is passed, uh, that quickly means that the celebration of Christmas is coming. We heard Pastor Don allude to all those facts again. Everyone's doing their shopping. How many of you went out on Black Friday? Let's just be honest, nothing to be ashamed of. Some of you are like, you know, don't look. Yeah. So like Christmas is coming. And I was talking earlier about what I like about Christmas. And, you know, we get in the mood, we get in the season and all those things, and we get excited. And it's that time of year where we start to remember these songs. And if, if you want to sing along with me, because I'm <clears throat> awful at this, um, feel free. But, you know, a lot of times we hear this song about Santa Claus, for example, like, you better watch out, better not cry. Better not pout, join in any time. <laughs> telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Don't worry, you don't have to repent that we sung Santa Claus in a church. Everything is going to be okay. <laughs> Some of you are like, we just sang about Santa in church. So I just don't know what that young pastor's doing up there. Just... <laughs> but let's think about this for a moment. We just talked about Santa Claus coming to town, how Santa Claus knows everything about us. He has his little list. He's checking it once, he's checking it twice. Maybe this sounds a little too familiar, but it's found in the scriptures. Look with me at Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says this, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus not only left the cross or the manger or the grave, but he's returning. Maybe the song, maybe, maybe the song Santa Claus is coming to town should be changed. Maybe it should say something like, you better watch out, better not cry, better not pout, I'm telling you why. Jesus is returning. He has a list and it won't be checked twice. 
He's had all eternity to find out who's been naughty and who's been nice. He's returning again. He's returning again. He sees everything you're doing, so be righteous for goodness sake. And I'm declaring to you, here's why Jesus is returning for his bride. He's returning for his church, which is, encompasses anyone who has given their heart to him, confessed with their mouth and declared with their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And maybe we need to get a little more comfortable singing that song because Jesus burns with this all-encompassing love for us, a love that has never, never, ever been touched that even though we think we love Jesus and we've experienced his love, we've never experienced the fullness of it. There will come one day that we will encounter the fullness of God's love because we can't handle it in all of it right now. And it's not just a, a section of Jesus's heart that he has reserved with love only for Christ followers. The word tells us that his love burns for every human being on this earth that he burns night and day with love for all of humanity. That's why he sent Christ to the earth since the beginning. And we may be comfortable with the facts that Jesus is going to return. Because some of us are comfortable with him being in the manger. Some of us are comfortable with him being on the cross. Some of us are comfortable with him leaving the grave. And, and some of us are comfortable with the fact that, yeah, Jesus is going to return. Yay, awesome. It's going to be fantastic. And I guarantee you, it is going to be fantastic. Well, I'm trying to guarantee you. I mean, I really haven't experienced that yet. So just track with me. Some of you will get that in a moment. But anyway, it's, it's going to be awesome. But there's other, this other portion of scripture that, that maybe we're not so comfortable with because here's the thing. We have to consider this, that first of all, Jesus is our bridegroom. It says that he will return for his bride. And if you understand the, the wedding and, and the, the symbolism of, of, a, of a Hebrew culture, of a Jewish culture, when the bride was betrothed to the, to the groom, it wasn't like, hey, let's get engaged. Let's plan this wedding. And in six months, you know, this is the date and pastor so-and-so is going to marry us and we're going to rush off to our honeymoon. It's going to be fantastic. Everything's going to be wonderful and blissful. That wasn't what it was like. What would happen is, is that the, the groom-to-be would go and approach the parents of the bride and they would make a deal. And then the the that which the, the bride was, was preparing herself. And all she would be told is someday there will be a point where I will come for you. The groom would tell the bride. You won't know when, but be ready. Be watching and waiting for me and I will come and return for you. For now, now catch this language. I'm going to go to my father's house and prepare a place for you and for us where we will dwell together. And the groom would go back to his physical parents' house and he would build a place right there for him and his bride to be. And then once it was constructed, without the bride knowing, because she had to be ready at any given moment, because her bridegroom could return. And the bridegroom would come and he would come with his entourage and they would make a parade of it. And everyone knew that that bride was about to get married because the bridegroom was coming for his bride. And he would come to her residence and she would be ready for him. And he would take her back to his father's house. Jesus uses the exact same language. And he says that he is our bridegroom and we are his bride. And that he loves his bride so much that he burns constantly for her, that he is waiting for the moment when daddy God looks at him and says, you go get her. You go get her and bring her back here. Go get her and bring her back here. But not only is Jesus our bridegroom, he is also our king. And understand Jesus, he doesn't share well. He doesn't share kingdoms well with others. 
I begin to discover this thing about Jesus that anyone who opposes him or his leadership or his kingship, he's not really cool with. I found this thing about Jesus is that he doesn't have any compromise. He doesn't work out deals with people. In fact, he doesn't work out what deals with the kings of the earth or even those who pose to believe that they are the kings of the earth. Him and the one they call the Antichrist are not on the same page. They're just not tracking together. They're not meeting anytime soon, I'm pretty sure, according to the word of God. There is no deal worked out with them. It's simply this, that Jesus is the king of kings. There can only be one king above every king, and there is no such thing that will ever be allowed that any other king will be able to exist on this earth at the same time as he does. That's just a fact. And it says that he is the king and that he possesses all things and all power, and no one else will have that. And that's a fact. And finally, we also know that not only is he our bridegroom, is he our king, but also he is our judge. That it says that that Jesus is full of justice and zeal. And this justice and this zeal about Jesus, that little baby in the manger who went to the cross and rose from the grave will return with a justice and a zeal for his bride. And the word tells us that anything that hinders the love between him and his bride, he will destroy. He will annihilate it. Understand this, church. Jesus isn't going to get halfway down and stop and be like, oh, wait, whoops. I think I'm a little too early. Uh, hey, can we back this thing up, guys? Let's just, let's raise the clouds. Let's, yeah, bring it back up. Yeah, sorry. Put the horse back in the stable. You know, a little premature on this. I don't think everybody's ready yet. No, 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 no. It says that Jesus will descend with justice in his eyes and in his heart, and he will come to destroy everything that comes between him and his bride because he is a lover of our souls and he is on a mission for his father. And that's a fact. Some of us are comfortable knowing the facts that Jesus in the manger, some of us are comfortable with Jesus being on the cross, and some of us are comfortable with Jesus being raised from the dead, and some of us are comfortable with Jesus returning, and and some of us are uncomfortable with Jesus returning, and we don't have the fullness of it, and that's okay, but maybe there's some of us here that are a little too comfortable with Jesus' return. Maybe we should be asking him for perseverance. Maybe we should be praying and asking him to give us endurance. Maybe we should ask that our hearts won't be offended because he didn't come rescue us the way we thought he would rescue us. There's going to come a point, church, where the curtain of time is going to close. Time is going to cease as we know it. And that sky is going to roll back. It's just going to peel back. And those clouds that once existed in that beautiful blue sky that we once knew is going to open up. And it's going to look a lot different. Heaven is going to gather around and Jesus is going to descend from that sky. And it's not going to be Jesus in the manger. And it's not going to be Jesus on the cross. It's going to be the one who rose from the grave. It's going to be Jesus, our bridegroom, our king, and our judge. And he's going to descend from that sky and we're going to meet him and we are going to rule and we are going to reign with him. And it's going to be awesome and it's going to be terrifying at the same time. Those are the facts. So my question to those of you in here this morning, will you be comfortable with the facts about Jesus' return? Are you comfortable now with right where you're at in your journey with him? Or are you willing to be uncomfortable with Jesus enough to say, I'm ready to face the reality of your return and I'm willing to go tell others that you're returning. I'm comfortable now with the fact that time is getting short. 
And I need to fulfill the mission that you have given me to go tell people that you are returning. Yesterday, I had to go to the mall. I had to return a few things. And I see through different lenses right now in my life. And as I'm walking through the mall, I wasn't trying to scope out the sales, see what I missed, see what the hype was about. But literally every person I passed, every person I passed, as I could get a good look at them, two questions popped into my mind. Question number one, do they intimately know Jesus? Do they really intimately know Jesus? And number two, are they prepared for when he returns? Are they really prepared for when he returns? And the third question that popped into my heart was, am I doing my best to prepare people for their return, for the return of Christ? Am I really telling people about Jesus? And that time is short, that time is speeding up, that we're running out of time, we can't do business as usual. So today I leave you with the facts that Jesus left the manger, he left the cross, he left the grave, and he's returning. And that is why Jesus is so essential. Would you stand? Father, this morning, may our hearts be rendered with your truth. Father, may the reality of Christ coming to this world really hit us hard. I pray, God, that we won't be satisfied with knowing the facts anymore. I pray that just knowing the facts about Jesus won't be good enough. Father, I pray that experiencing, encountering you, knowing the truth and following through with what you call us to do would be what moves us. That our hearts would be struck with obedience. And Father, that as we open your word and as we dig through the scriptures, May our hearts, God, be set ablaze like never before. Father, for those who are comfortable with you in the manger, may they receive the salvation of Christ. For those who are comfortable with you being on the cross, Lord, may the conviction of the Holy Spirit call us into those places where we need to be crucified. God, may we rise to that place with you where you have us already set and yearning for us to come to. And Father, if we're a little too comfortable about you returning, I ask that you awaken our spirit, man, that like the disciples, we would be watching the sky, earnestly waiting for the return of the Lord. But God, at the same time, may we earnestly be declaring that Jesus is returning. And may salvation, the message of salvation, be at the forefront of our lips in the marketplace, on our campuses, in our schools, in our families, Lord, wherever we go. God, may this be our lifestyle. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Enjoy your day.